Today, I'll be telling you a story that I've been holding on to for a very, very long time. A story that I grew up hearing all through my childhood in my small seaside city of Perth, Western Australia. It is a story of a serial killer who abducted, tortured and killed his victims only minutes away from where I'm recording this video right now. A story where I sat as a clerk to the chief judge in the very courtroom with a man who haunted my city for over 25 years was finally put away for good. This is a very personal story to me, my friends and my city. And most of all, it is a bittersweet story for the poor families who had to endure years of pain and sadness to finally find a resolution to a nightmare that they were not able to come out from for over 25 years. As such, I'm not going to do my usual intro. However, this story took a very long time to bring to light and the final court judgment alone was over 600 pages long. So I sincerely ask for your support by liking, subscribing and turning on the notification bell. That will mean a lot. So, are you ready? Because today, I bring you the story of the Claremont serial killer. In the affluent suburb of Claremont, Western Australia, the streets whisper tales of prosperity and class. Spanning an area of only 3.6 kilometres squared, or 1.4 square miles, this suburb is part of the exclusive Golden Triangle, which is a group of suburbs in Perth where you'll find riverfront mansions owned by billionaires and royal families, eye-watering high incomes, exclusive private schools and a plethora of exotic cars. As they say, if you've made it in life, this is where you live. But beyond the stellar light of success, Claremont will always host a shadow, a shadow lurking unseen, unheard, but deeply felt. This shadow came into existence in the year of 1996 and would linger on for decades after. For 18 year old Sarah, 1996 was the year she was finally free. Born on the 12th of November 1977, Sarah Ellen Spears was brought up in Darkin, a small town in the Weeper region of Western Australia. The Weeper region is a beautiful part of the world. This is pure country Australia and a prominent farming region in the state where you can wake up to striking yellow canola fields and fall asleep under clear skies and bright shining stars. I should probably disclose that I'm quite biased because I also grew up in the wheat belt. And like Sarah, I attended high school in Perth. For Sarah, she attended the prestigious Iona Presentation College in Mosman Park, an elite private girls school where yearly tuition fees alone are over $15,000 a year. After graduating, Sarah went to secretarial school and got a job as a receptionist at an engineering consultancy firm in Subiaco. She later moved to South Perth, where she shared an apartment with her sister, Amanda. For much of her life, she was a bright and happy girl who loved her friends and family. Today, the 26th of January 1996, was no different. As she stared into the mirror, slowly applying her makeup, she briefly caught her reflection. Standing a petite 5 foot 2 inches with green eyes and shoulder length blonde hair, she smiled. Work had been stressful and the days were long, but Friday night was for the girls and tonight they were going to let their hair down and enjoy the best that Perth could offer. The first stop, a bar right next to the beach called Ocean Beach Hotel in Cottesloe. This is a massive hotspot in Perth where the lines to get in often drags around the corner of the building. But it isn't often seen as a quote-unquote club. 
It's more of a place to indulge in a couple of beverages during the afternoon and evening so that you could then head towards the city to go clubbing at night. And that was exactly the plan for Sarah and her friends. Bumping along to upbeat pop, Sarah rocked back and forth. She'd been at Ocean Beach Hotel with her friends for a couple of hours now, and it was now time to finally enjoy the night at a brand new establishment. This establishment was Club Bay View in Claremont. Now, as I said before, Claremont is a very, very, very prestigious suburb, and it's also very quiet. But whilst the inner streets of Claremont provide a very safe and secure haven for all the multi-million dollar homes, on the outskirts, it's home to a number of select bars and venues, which at night turn into clubs. This is undoubtedly because of three reasons. One, Claremont is home to a high-end shopping centre called Claremont Quarter, and therefore there's a commercial element to the suburb that allows bars and restaurants to actually flourish. Secondly, it is close to the University of Western Australia, the oldest and most prestigious university in the state. This means there's a lot of college students who are looking for a place for fun and to hang out, especially at nighttime. And thirdly, Claremont borders a very busy stretch of road called Stirling Highway. This is a four-lane single carriageway and a major arterial road between Perth, the capital of Western Australia, and the port city of Fremantle. Therefore, a lot of transient visitors pass through Claremont every day. For Sarah, this set of circumstances is actually perfect. Going to Club Bay View would mean that she wouldn't have to travel all the way to the city, but she would still be able to experience a lively club scene in a more safer part of Perth. She was also very lucky because tonight, getting to Club Bay View would be a very, very easy task. On the public phone at Ocean Beach Hotel, Sarah dialed the number of the one person who would always have her back. Picking up the phone all the way in South Perth, Amanda Spears knew who was calling and why she was calling. Smiling, she listened to cries of her sister begging for a lift to Claremont. As a big sister, Amanda had always taken care of Sarah, and tonight she would take up her big sister duty to make sure that her little sister got to where she needed to, safe and sound. It was only a short while later that Amanda would pick up Sarah and her friend, Emma McCormack, Anne Donnelly and Greg Mayfield, and they would pray down Stirling Highway. Pulling up to the entrance to Club Bayview, Sarah got out of the car and immediately turned around. Despite the honking of the cars behind them, Sarah walked all the way around to Amanda's window and looked at her big sister. She then proceeded to hug her and kiss her on the cheek. She smiled and then finally whispered, thanks for dropping me off. As Sarah walked away, Amanda noticed her outfit. A light colored t-shirt, a pair of Portman's beige colored tailored shorts, which came just above her knee and a black jacket that she tied around her waist. That was the last time that Amanda would ever, ever see her little sister. Inside the club, the music was loud and the drinks were louder. In Australia, being 18 years old means that you are not only a legal adult, but you can also illegally drink. So for Sarah, this meant that she could enjoy the night indulging in alcohol. Taking a sip of a vodka lime soda, she looked around the room. As expected, the floor was packed with people. Spotting her friends, she walked from the bar to a small section of the dance floor. Now, while she was single, by all accounts, Sarah stayed with her friend group the whole night. And at least from the testimony by those she was with that night, she never spoke to any strangers. Around 1.45am, Sarah was still on the dance floor. But as the clock continued to dwindle down, so did her enthusiasm. She very much enjoyed the night, but now she was absolutely exhausted. Spotting her friend Emma in the corner of her eye, she walked over and said that she was ready to go. Emma, on the other hand, 
wasn't. She begged Sarah to stay, and even said that if Sarah stayed a little while longer, they could all leave together. But Sarah was way too tired. Hugging Emma, she said that she couldn't wait any longer and that she would get a taxi home. But she was very excited about attending the Sky Show with Emma on the 28th of January to celebrate Australia Day. Stepping out into the night air, she felt a slight chill. But she proceeded on to a telephone box located on Stirling Road near the intersection of Stirling Highway. There, she picked up a phone and telephoned for a taxi at 2.06am to pick her up. A few minutes later, a taxi driver pulled up to the telephone box. The indicator on, he waited for the passenger to get in. But there was no one there. Looking at the road ahead, the taxi driver sensed the calmness in the air. No cars and no people. Sarah Ellen Spears had disappeared into the night. Amanda woke up the next morning to an empty apartment. While she initially wasn't too worried, soon she realised that something was wrong. With Sarah not contacting her, or her family, or her friends, and making no appearances at work at BSD Consultants in Subiaco, Sarah's family soon realised that the worst thing imaginable had happened. As they filled out the missing persons report, the police tried to reassure them that everything would be fine, but it wouldn't. Unknown to them at the time, this wasn't a typical disappearance, and it was definitely no accident. It was a start of a deadly chain of abductions and murders that wouldn't be solved for another 20 plus years. Whilst the disappearance of Sarah Spears was the talk of the town and initially did bring caution to the wind for many partygoers in Perth and especially Claremont, six months down the track, the news semi-died down. The police had made no further inroads to finding Sarah, nor did they have any clues as to what may have happened to her. The only potential lead was that a handful of neighbours heard screaming coming from an occupied car which was parked on Monument Street in Mossman Park the same night within minutes from when Sarah had made the initial call to get a taxi. Mossman Park is an adjacent suburb to Claremont and it's also verges on Stirling Highway. So the initial theory was that Sarah may have willingly gotten into a car soon after calling the taxi but may have then become an unwilling passenger as the car headed down towards the roads heading to Fremantle. But this was just a theory. There was no evidence, forensic or otherwise, that would confirm this. And as such, the news died down. Six months later, the town was again bustling. For 23-year-old childcare worker Jane Rimmer, this would mean that she would spend the day visiting her parents at their home, having lunch with her mother, and then going out to have drinks with her mother and a family friend at the Shenton Park Hotel. Wearing blue denim jeans, a dark navy corduroy jacket, black boots and a silver watch, Jane left the Shenton Park Hotel at around 7.40pm. She had with her a packet of Stradbroke extra mild cigarettes, her Ventolin and a can of beer in her hand. Happy and acting normal, she said goodbye to her mother and proceeded to go to the Ocean Beach Hotel where she would meet her friends at around 8pm. Seeing her friends having dinner at the entrance to Ocean Beach Hotel, they sat together for another 10 or 15 minutes and then went to the main bar area where they stayed for another hour to have another drink. At around 9pm, the group then left the Ocean Beach Hotel and walked outside for a taxi. They didn't have to wait too long for a white sedan to pull up and within 10 minutes, they were at the taxi rank on Jujerry Street across the road from the Continental Hotel located on Bayview Terrace in Claremont. Much like the night that Sarah Spears disappeared, the atmosphere in Claremont was again buzzing. Walking to the lower bar area of the Continental Hotel, they saw how packed the place was. 
A little apprehensive and wanting a little space, they proceeded to go upstairs to the balcony area, where they proceeded to drink more alcohol. While tensions were initially quite happy at the beginning of the night, things did change. At one point, a friend of Jane's, Sian Chapman, noticed that Jane was actually crying. Consoling Jane, they eventually caught up with the rest of the group and proceeded to head to Club Bayview. However, they did not go in. Leaning on a car at the entrance to the club, Jane waited with Sian and a few other friends and they all eventually decided to head back to the Continental Hotel. Based on CCTV evidence, Jane was seen trailing behind the rest of her friends group. The group then went to a taxi rank on Jujerry Street. The five of them waited for a taxi for around 10 minutes. This night was apparently quite busy because whilst there were a number of taxis about, none of them stopped because they had people in them. In the testimony evidence, Sian Chapman said that Jane Rimmer was waiting with them at the start and then she decided to walk back to the Continental Hotel. Whilst this was happening, a taxi eventually did arrive and Jane's friends hopped in, with the intention of going to Sian Chapman's home in City Beach. As the taxi pulled around the corner into Bayview Terrace, it slowed down in front of the Continental Hotel. Leaning out of the window, another one of Jane's friends shouted out to Jane, saying that they were leaving and that Jane should come with them. Leaning against a pole outside the front doors of the Continental Hotel, Jane was acting strangely. She bluntly replied back that she was waiting and that she didn't want to go and turned her back and walked away from them. We don't know who Jane was waiting for or even what Jane was waiting for. What we do know is that as Jane continued to walk away, that would be the last ever sighting of Jane Rimmer by anyone. In a span of six months, Perth detectives were facing two abductions with the same victim profile. Both were young white women, relatively petite in frame, who were alone and intoxicated and were last seen around the Claremont party area late at night. But unlike Sarah Spears, there was a breakthrough, albeit a tragic one. On the first week of August, a Saturday, Michael and his family went to their property in the morning and spent a few hours to enjoy the land and explore. With them were their two children and two of their friends. Leaving the property at around 2pm, their route home took them along Woolcott Road, heading towards Miller Road. As they were driving down, out of nowhere, a random chicken appeared and scuttled in front of their car. Initially, there was a plethora of screaming in the car as Michael slammed on his brakes. But soon after, there were joyous laughter as the children and Michael got out to see the chicken. Meanwhile, Michael's wife, Tammy, stepped outside to see where they were. Looking around, she spotted some death lilies on the right-hand side of the car. A very poisonous plant, but also a very attractive one. So she stepped forward and kneeled and picked up two of the lilies off the ground. As she was doing so, something caught her eye. Three metres from where she was standing on the road was a sole lily. Abnormally large and shaped like a coon, it was unique and it was rare. Tammy walked closer, but then felt what seemed like a stick touching the back of her calf. She looked down and her eyes traced the origins of a stick. All of a sudden, her heart started to pump louder and louder. And then, she screamed. This time, it wasn't another animal. It was the body of a dead woman. And near her, a silver watch. The same silver watch that belonged to Jane Rimmer. Now that there was a body, the police felt confident that they would finally be able to pull all the pieces together and not only figure out how this tragedy happened, but most importantly, find the person responsible. But again, this would not happen because the killer wanted the trilogy. One last victim before he could retire for good. This victim would be a young lawyer 
called Ciara Glennon. Standing five foot tall, Ciara Glennon was slim, had a fair but tan complexion, and had recently dyed her hair a lighter shade of brown. This unfortunately made the 27-year-old the perfect fit for the killer's victim profile. Much like the other victims, Ciara was at another location before she decided to head to Claremont late at night. In this case, it was Friday night on the evening of the 14th of March 1997, approximately seven months after the body of Jane Rimmer was found. Finishing work at 5.45, she turned off her computer and then proceeded to take the lifts upstairs to the 16th floor of her firm's office. That's where the boardroom was located and that was where she was going to attend work drinks. With stunning views over St George's Terrace, a prominent business district at the heart of Perth City, Sierra sipped on champagne while conversing with her colleagues about her sister's upcoming wedding. The rest of the evening was peaceful, fun and by all reports, everyone was enjoying their time. A bit before 11pm, the remaining group decided to head to the Continental Hotel. This time, a taxi was not needed. A partner at Ciara's firm, named Neil Ferris, had offered to drive them instead. With that, the group took the lift to head downstairs to the basement car park, and one by one, everyone crammed into Neil Ferris's car and they drove directly to the Continental. Parking across the road near the train station, the group then crossed the road to walk up to Jew Jerry Street and then to Bayview Terrace, arriving at the hotel at around 11.15pm. But just before going in, Sierra paused and let her colleagues walk in front of her. She had spotted a friend who was standing on the balcony right at the entrance. In clear sight from the road, Sierra stood and conversed with her friend, and after a couple of minutes of conversation, Sierra then went inside to join the rest of her colleagues. Once inside, however, Sierra didn't stay for long. At around 11.45, she told her colleague that she had had enough and was going to go home. Based on witness accounts, while Sierra wasn't completely intoxicated, there were very clear signs that she had been drinking. As Sierra walked away from the Continental, this would be the last time that her colleagues would ever see her again. However, unlike the other victims, there would be witnesses who would come forward to describe a woman walking in the direction of Stirling Highway a woman we believe to be Sierra. These accounts refer to a woman, aged between 25 and 30, wearing a light-coloured top and a jacket tied around her waist. One witness would speak to this woman holding a bag tightly tucked under her arm with what appeared to be a phone in the other hand, and she was looking like she was waiting for someone. Most importantly, however, there were recounts of there being a white Commodore sedan, which was seen in the vicinity of the area soon after Sierra was walking down Stirling Highway. This was the same type of car that was mentioned by some other witnesses who came forward to give a police interview in the disappearance of Sarah Spears and Jane Rimmer. Previously, this piece of information could not be corroborated, but now, maybe it would be a valuable clue. On the 3rd of April, Sierra's body would be found in dense bushland in Ingleton, an hour's drive away from Claremont. The forensic profile showed a body that had similar marks and abrasions as the body of Jane Rimmer, and was covered up and concealed in a similar way, with branches and vegetation semi-covering her body. With three disappearances and two confirmed deaths, suspicion arose dramatically. Initially, this centred around the unidentified vehicles seen at two of the locations and an unidentified man seen in CCTV footage. 
Suspicion then focused on Perth's taxi drivers because the women were last seen in circumstances where they may have used taxis. This included the driver who claimed to have transported Sarah Spears the night before her disappearance. As a result, a massive fingerprint and DNA testing exercise was carried out on the thousands of taxi drivers licensed in Western Australia. After evidence showed that there were a number of unlicensed operators, the examination standards to get a taxi license was raised and 78 drivers who had significant criminal history were de-licensed. Stricter standards were also applied in verifying that decommissioned taxis were stripped of all insignia and equipment. Whilst this undoubtedly played a positive role in ensuring greater passenger safety, the police were no closer to finding out who was responsible than when Sarah Spears was taken back all the way in January 1996. And nothing would change for the next 20 years. But the reason why you should never give up is because sometimes if you keep trying, one day you'll find an answer. This answer was finally found in December 2016. Based on DNA, forensic and propensity evidence, this is what really happened to Sarah Spears, James Rimmer and Sierra Glennon. Sitting in his car in a darkened street alone with the sounds of crickets chirping around him, this was not an abnormal practice. He had done this many times before. And what he'd planned to do tonight was something that he had done twice, most recently last year. His impulses first revealed themselves when he was a teenager. Barely an adult, he began taking women's underwear and nightgowns from the homes and clotheslines of his neighbours in the suburb of Huntingdale. At the ages of 19 and 21, he attacked random women, but ended up abandoning the assaults after they fought back. And at 26 years old, he abducted a teenager and sexually assaulted her. But this time, he was going to take it a step further. Looking ahead, he saw a woman who was walking perpendicular to him. She couldn't see him, but he could see her. This was who he was waiting for, and this was his chance. Turning on the engine, Bradley Robert Edwards slowly disengaged the parking brake and idled towards the young woman. Seeing the car approach, she walked over and got in. It was exactly how he expected things to go. She was intoxicated, young, and the false comfort and illusion of him being a worker for Telstra in uniform was enough to persuade her to take a lift from him. Driving down Sterling Highway, past Mosman Park, Sarah Spears quickly realised that something was wrong. As Bradley Robert Edwards turned into a narrow street, she screamed and he grabbed her and subdued her. Soon, there was silence in the air. For the next 12 months, Bradley Robert Edwards played the same charade, first abducting Jane Rimmer and then Ciara Glennon, who would find them alone and intoxicated, walking away from the busy Claremont night scene and would persuade them to jump into his car. Like most serial killers, he knew how to be charismatic and charming, and he knew how to persuade his victims. And when they didn't want to do it voluntarily, standing at six feet tall with a large build, he could physically force them. Tied up and partially unconscious in the backseat of his work car, Jane Rimmer and Ciara Glennon spent the last moments of their lives knowing that there was no hope. Diving deep within the dense bushland, Bradley Robert Edwards proceeded to assault each of them, but this was not done without a fight. Digging their fingers into his arms and face, Jane Rimmer and Ciara Glennon fought hard. So hard that DNA evidence of Bradley Robert Edwards was found underneath Ciara Glennon's fingernails. But that wasn't enough. Holding a sharp knife, he held the victim's hair and slit their throats. Soon after, 
he attempted to partially bury their bodies, but not enough so that they would be completely hidden. After all, he had pride over his work, and he wanted his work to be publicly shown. And after that, after it was done, he would wash his hands, clean his car, and then return home as a family man. At dawn on December 22, 2016, heavily armed members of the WA Police Tactical Response Group forced their way into Bradley Robert Edwards' Qdale house and arrested Edwards on the spot. The trial of Bradley Robert Edwards was one that completely engulfed Perth and received non-stop media attention. Due to this causing potential corruption to the jury pool, instead of there being a jury trial, it was decided that a judge-only trial would be conducted. This trial was heard over seven months, starting on November 25th, 2019, and encompassed 95 sitting days of the WA Supreme Court. As proved by the prosecution and accepted by Justice Stephen Hall, Edward's downfall was his prior attempts where he assaulted three women before the events relating to Sarah Spears transpired. During these assaults, he left crucial DNA evidence, which after retesting in 2009 and 2008, finally forged the nexus between Edwards and his victims. In addition, the prosecution was able to successfully use propensity evidence to prove that the accused had the inclination to violently attack women not known to him in a particular manner because he had done so previously in the commissioning of the Huntingdale, Hollywood and Caracato offences which he was found guilty of. For those of you who don't know, propensity evidence is a form of circumstantial evidence. It is evidence of the conduct of a person or the evidence of their character or reputation that supports the view that they tend to act in a certain way. Finally, the prosecution presented fibre evidence that established both Jane Rimmer and Sierra Glennon were in a VS holding Commodore, which were vehicles driven by Telstra employees. The accused was a Telstra employee at the time of the offence, and it was a prosecution's case that he drove the car in which the fibres were discovered. With that, Justice Hall was able to find Bradley Robert Edwards guilty beyond reasonable doubt for the willful murder of Jane Rimmer and Ciara Glennon. Tragically, however, the same could not be said for Sarah Spears. As her body was never found, there could be no way to confirm the DNA evidence or fibre evidence. Whilst there was a strong likelihood that Edwards also killed Sarah Spears, and it was more likely than not, any remaining evidence could only point to generalised similarities, which alone were not strong enough to support a verdict of guilty. On the 23rd of December 2020, Bradley Robert Edwards was sentenced to life imprisonment with the possibility of parole after 40 years. Aged 51 at the time of his trial, there is a high likelihood that he will die in prison. So there you have it. This was the story of the Claremont serial killer. Please let me know what you think in the comment section down below. Also, if you haven't already done so, please summon the like button to the stand so I know that I have your full support. Please also press subscribe and turn on all notifications so you can be part of the exclusive club that gets to see my videos as soon as they're uploaded. Also, if you don't know, my videos are available as podcasts on all major streaming platforms and I also do podcast-only exclusive stories, so make sure you check them out. Links are down below. And finally, if you ever need to contact me or you want to share a story, you can do so on Instagram, Twitter or TikTok, all under the username Raphael Parvin. I read all my DMs. So, thank you so much for your time today. I will see you on the next case.